0: If you have your Bibles, please open once again with me to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me once again just express our family's gratitude to the warm, warm welcome you've given us here this last uh, week and a half, truly, just all the love and hospitality and warmth and kindness, uh, the fellowship here at Covenant, the Uh, the Christian love that you've extended to all of us here at Covenant Presbyterian Church. It means so much to us. We're so glad to be laboring here uh, among you and with you for the cause of King Jesus, and it means a great deal uh, to us the way you've already embraced us and made us feel at home and welcome. So thank you. Pray for us, all of us, as Pastor Wilborn already alluded uh, in our travels this coming week for the General Assembly, and we'll be eager to give you a report as to how things have played out in the weeks to come. But for now, let's take a look once again at Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue through our ongoing study of this wonderful letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, We read verses 15 through uh, the end of the chapter last week, but uh, even in reading through it, you can see how chock full of gospel grace. Now this section of the letter is, it's hard just to pack it all into one sermon. So we focused specifically on verses 15 through 20 last Lord's Day. We read through 23, but we fo- stopped at verse 20 in terms of our study of the text. Well, we're going to pick up right where we left off. I'd like to read beginning at verse 15 through the end of the chapter, but we're going to focus tonight specifically on verses 21 and 22 and 23, particularly this evening. So this is God's holy word, Ephesians chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 15, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? O oh Lord, give us your spirit's help and illumination as we study your word this night. Again, we ask, O Holy Spirit, God the Lord, that you'd help us to read and mark and learn and inwardly comprehend all that we read. Seal it to our hearts. For your glory and for our everlasting good and everlasting joy, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we're back in this marvelous letter to the Ephesians, and we're working our way through this letter again, as we've noted, because the year... Uh, 2020, I think, really was an important turning point in the life of the North American church. Uh, I'm not sure yet if it was the great reset uh, that certain cultural pundits are calling it. Maybe it was. I think we still need to wait on the evidence for that and see how it will bear out. Time will tell. But we did observe many, many things, I think. Uh, For a number of people, the lockdowns and the time away from the church really did expose true loyalties and objects of worship. I'm not speaking locally here, but I'm speaking nationwide as a national phenomenon as we observe the North American church broadly speaking. And for many, sadly, their true object of worship wasn't the Lord Jesus. Right? We're not talking about people with legitimate health reasons that bar them from coming to public worship. No, no. We're talking about nominal Christianity, And my hunch is that it's slowly but surely coming to an end, at least in this generation, that those who just pretended to be interested in the Lord Jesus, frankly, aren't pretending anymore. Actually, nominal Christianity may be ending surely, and maybe not even all too slowly. It seems that the pandemic, in its own way, actually accelerated the coming end of nominalism. There's various surveys and demographic studies that are bearing that out. 2020, as I've said, exposed the fault lines in the church. It didn't create them expose them they were already there and i believe that for many churches the number of nominal folks in their ranks perhaps caught them off guard now as i've noted i'm not the pro- i'm not a prophet i'm not the son of a prophet but i do suspect that for the next 20 years or more we're going to find ourselves in a posture of recalibration and adjustment as we see what healthy churches are going to look like at least those who have biblically healthy and biblical biblically serious priorities I do think, though, that they will be, in the main, healthier overall. I think that the people who come through our doors and into our pews, into our chairs, are there because they love the Lord Jesus and they want to be here. They want to be in the house of the Lord amongst the people of the Lord, praising the Lord, and we should praise God for that. At the same time, this season, I think, has given us serious pause, and for good reason. We're being challenged, I think, I do believe, to think seriously about what we believe as Christians, about why we believe the things that we believe as Christians, and whether or not it's actually worth suffering for, if it should come to that. We need to reckon with these things, and we need to decide for ourselves if Jesus is worth more than the potential consequences that await us if we're going to maintain biblical fidelity to the Jesus whom we proclaim to love. We need to think seriously, brothers and sisters, about who Christ is as he comes to us in Holy Scripture, not the Jesus of our imagination or our wishes, but the Jesus as Scripture teaches. We need to think seriously about who we are, who the church is, and how the church ought to function. And that's why we are in the midst of Ephesians right now, because this marvelous letter speaks to exactly those things, as we alluded to last week. So much about the doctrine of Christ, who Jesus is, we find here in these pages of Ephesians. And so much of the doctrine of the church, who is his bride, who is his body, how ought she to be, we find that matter in these pages as well. And hence, we are in this marvelous study together. And so as we look at the latter half of Paul's prayer tonight, as I said last week, we focused especially on verses 15 through 20, and we thought about our identity and our security as Christians. We thought about the certainty of our future as it's bound up in union with Christ and in the delight of our triune God. Well, tonight, as Paul continues his prayers, we look at verses 20 and 21, 22 and 23, Paul here wants to tell believers of the grace and power available to us as we make our pilgrimage throughout this world. Paul wants us to know not just where we are going as Christians, our, our future. He does want us to know that, but not just that. He wants us to know not just who we are as Christians, our identity, He does want us to know that, as we saw last time, but he wants us to know more than that. He wants us to know clearly the extent of the resources of grace at work in our lives. He wants us to show just how secure we are in him so that we won't be caught unaware by the snares hidden all around us. And so in order to drive home that idea of how secure believers in the Lord Jesus really and truly are, he begins by heaping up these descriptors of God's power. Look with me first, even back at verse 19. He talks there about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So not only, does, not only does Paul tell us that God's power is great, as he asserts there, but he shows us that God's power is great. He tells us there in verse 19, and as he leads on into 20 through the end of the chapter, he shows us there in those concluding verses. And notice... Where would Paul have us look to see the immeasurable power of God on display? It's wonderful. You see it, Paul says, in its sheerest clarity in Christ. Look at Christ. See again what what Paul says in verse 19 as he segues on into verse 20. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked, where? Where? In Christ. I don't know if any of you are using an old King James version of the Bible as you're sitting there this evening, but if you were, the King James version says, The power of God to us, word. The power of God to us, word. This power is all seen, it is all revealed in Jesus Christ, and He is exercising it unto and toward His people. Christian, lock your gaze there. When I was a boy, I'd go to the dentist. His name was Dr. Joseph D'Annunzio. And Dr. DeNunzio had a wonderful little method that he would use to help take our minds off of the fear in front of us. Uh, I had problematic teeth. Uh, some of it was not terribly my fault, but the fault of genetics. Some of it was absolutely my fault, way too much candy in younger days. But I was often getting fillings and so forth. And so I'd often have to go and get numbed with Novocaine, right? And get that dreadful needle injected into the gums. It was painful. And so, you know, to my seven-year-old self, the the needle as it's coming in in my gaze and being inserted down into my mouth, it seemed at the moment like the size of a small battleship. It was absolutely terrifying. But just before the doctor would come in with the needle uh, to give that awful pinch of Novocaine right in the side of the gums, he would say to me and to all his young patients, he'd say, look up. Look up and tell me what you see there. And as you're leaning back in the dentist chair and you look your gaze up upon the ceiling... Dr. DeNunzio had painted there on the ceiling this wonderful mural all over the ceiling tiles. Uh, when they had refurbished this old 1920s house to be his dental office, Dr. DeNunzio had this excellent idea to have a local artist paint the entire ceiling in the room full of pictures and characters that fascinated little boys. Uh, he had a specific room for his children patients, he had a boys room and a girls room. And in the, the room that I was in, he had all kinds of pictures up top that would fascinate little boys. There were pictures of castles and knights, there were kings, there were fire-breathing dragons, there was Batman, there was Superman, there, was, there were baseball players and football players. And so enraptured would be a little boy that as soon as he could take it all in and he'd start shattering away about how cool it was, well, the doctor had already come in and injected the Novocaine and the pinch of that discomfort was hardly even noticeable. It was a brilliant move on the dentist's part. Look up, he would say, essentially. Look up, take the focus off of yourself and off of your immediate unpleasantness and direct your gaze to something that is far more wondrous, far more fascinating than your own immediate little sphere. And likewise, in these verses, the Apostle Paul would have us lift our eyes from this world, even for a moment, and away from ourselves, outside of our internal processes outside of our own narrow myopic navel gazing and cause us to focus on another power from above right we we recite that in the creed all the time don't we when we rehearse what it is we believe as christians the way christians have been reciting together for two thousand years and more on the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and he sitteth at the right hand of god the father almighty that's the doctrine of christ's exaltation And that's the kind of doctrine that Paul says we need for the living of these days. That's certainly what he thought the Ephesians needed, right? If you're going to live the Christian life, if you're going to be the church, and in the book of Ephesians, this this little handbook on the Christian life that many scholars actually believe was a book that would be given to new converts uh, in the early church when they became Christians. And you can understand why. It's it's believed that uh, that, that, that Ephesians was copied down and distributed far and wide and was often given to new believers upon their conversion almost as a little handbook on the Christian life. And Paul says, if you're going to live the Christian life, if you're going to live the life that the Lord has called you to live, if you're going to be the church, you need this doctrine. Now, brothers and sisters, do you realize this doctrine, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, that he is... Seated above, the fact that he is seated above and rules over every power such that all must bow before him, that that truth is not some esoteric theological checkbox for us to recite and affirm. But more than that, that truth is for the good and comfort of your soul. Here's what we need as a church in the year 2022. I don't know exactly what's ahead. Will our culture continue to have a posture of hostility against us? Probably, at least for the near-term future. Will the government continue to enact and continue pressures and hostilities against biblical Christianity? I would largely suspect so. And how about closer to home? When heartbreak comes to your door, when death comes knocking, when cancer rears its ugly head, when you have lost that battle with that besetting sin once again. When the child for whom you have prayed and, prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and that situation continues to remain unchanged. Part of what you need to know, both for yourself and what we all need to know as we're in this thing together as God's people, what part of what we need to know is this doctrine that Christ is exalted and the power of God is strong enough to exceed your needs and that power is usward, it is toward us, it is exerted upon us, it is lavished upon us. That power that is more than sufficient for all your needs and all your wants and all your hurts and all your desires in Him. We must make Jesus the object of our constant fixation, and He must be the object of our unceasing preoccupation. This truth, brothers and sisters, is for our good, it is for our protection, it is for our strength, it is for our joy in him. Oh, how we need it. Christ exalted. We need to embrace this doctrine full-throatedly and full-heartedly tonight. And Paul outlines this doctrine and helps us to do that in three particular areas. So three things that I want us to see in our text this evening. First, from verse 20, Christ exalted Three ways in which Christ is exalted. First, verse 20, exalted over death. And then verse 21, Christ exalted over all powers. And then thirdly, Christ exalted in the church. We see that in verses 22 and 23. Christ exalted over death, Christ exalted over all powers, and then Christ exalted in the church. Let's look at this passage along those lines together tonight for a few moments. First, see God's power in the exaltation of Christ over death. We see that in verse 20. It is power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Friends, at risk of stating the obvious, at risk of repeating to you ad nauseum something that you know and love well, Jesus Christ is alive. How often we allow that marvelous truth to pass over our minds and our lips, and we regard it as unremarkable as the weather sometimes. You ever guilty of doing that? Right? Yeah, it's 85 degrees outside today, yeah. Yeah, Christ is risen. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Christ was risen on this first day of the week. He's risen. That's the reason we Christians gather as we do Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Every week we come on this festival day of the week, this first day of the week, when our Savior sprang forth victoriously from the dead, and we get to reorient. We get to recalibrate the sensors of our heart. We get to tune them again to this this defiant, this heart-thrilling creed that we confess, wherein we dare the world, we dare the world to attempt to rob and try and rob the believer of even an ounce of his or her cosmically sealed joy. We gather and we say, he is risen. He's risen indeed, The shackles of death that have held everybody else in the history of this planet in unbreakable slavery could not hold him. God raised his son to life. You see, friends, here's the thing. The death of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ alone, by itself, is insufficient to be good news because it only tells half the story, right? If I can put it a little provocatively, a dead Jesus is no use to anyone. A dead Jesus is no use to anyone. No, our message, the Christian gospel, the good news, is that Christ, who died in place of guilty sinners, did not stay dead. He rose. The power of God broke the chains of death, vindicating his innocent son, our Savior. The resurrection is what makes the good news about Jesus good. Good. It means that what he has done for us, he is alive now to give to us. That which he has secured, that which he has accomplished, he is alive now to dispense to us his church in his grace and to dispense it lavishly and profligately. And here in our text, Paul the Apostle is saying that the power that gave life to Christ's broken and lifeless body is the same power that guarantees life for you, Christian. I love how it came out even in Dr. Wilborn's sermon this morning, if you noticed it. I love when these things happen. We didn't plan this. You know, we, didn't, we didn't have a little holy huddle in the back hallway earlier this week and say, make sure you bring this up in your sermon and I'll make sure I bring this up in my sermon. You no, know, we didn't do that. But in God's providence, these things both get emphasized morning and evening. I love when that happens. You heard Dr. Wilborn say that, that our hearts being as wicked as they were and our souls and our, our, ourselves being as dead as they were, nothing else would do to bring them to life other than the same power that was at work to resurrect Jesus Christ. That's the kind of power that it took to raise you to new life and to raise me to new life. And that's what Paul is saying here as well. Once again in Ephesians 1, the same power that led Jesus out from the grave has given new life to you, Christian believer, and it will lead you home all the way to glory. See the power of God in the exaltation of Jesus over death. That's the first thing. Christ exalted. Jesus exalted over death. That's the first thing. And secondly, see the power of God. See Christ exalted over all powers. Not merely over death, but over all powers. Look with me in verses 20 through 22. Verses 20 through 22. It is a power that he worked in Christ when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, right? To be seated at the right hand of a king or a monarch or a deity, of course, that's the position of authority and power. It's not merely a preference because that's the, the, his writing hand. That's the hand that he uses as penmanship. No, ancient Near Eastern literature, all kinds of ancient literature, the right hand is the seat of power and authority. It's language drawn from Psalm 110, verse 1. Do you know it? Uh, incidentally, Dr. Duncan Rankin is going to be preaching on Psalm 110 next week during the installation service. Psalm 110, verse 1, "'Sit, the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand,' until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus rose from the grave in order to reign. He overcame death in order to rule all things. And then, specifically, Paul says that he, Jesus Christ, presides over all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. That's language that he will go on to use once again in Ephesians chapter 6. Those of you who know Ephesians, you know chapter 6 very well. You're familiar with the language that Paul invokes there. He describes the spiritual forces of wickedness that are lined up against the mission of God and against the church of God. These spiritual principalities and powers, these are demonic powers that Paul has in mind. But really, as, as you look at the description here, it covers every kind of power, not just demonic power. But it covers demonic power and angelic forces. It covers human government, physical violence and aggression. Every kind of recognizable authority that we might care to name must ultimately bow before his sovereignty and his lordship, so that he reigns not merely over evil things or forces of darkness, putting them in subjection, but over all things. Over all things. Now brothers and sisters, the world is a dark place. Right? Sin and Satan, you know this, are cruel and relentless enemies, and more often than not, our flesh is weak, and temptation is strong, and peer pressure is powerful. Cultural expectations are demanding, and we sometimes wonder, let's be honest, we sometimes wonder, how in the world will we ever be able to stand firm? We wonder, or at least we're tempted, we're at least tempted to wonder, is the power of God really adequate for what I'm up against at home? Or if I'm at work in this world? Spiritual evil is real, and for those of you who have experienced such things, for those of you who have experienced those dark nights of the soul, it is absolutely ghastly. Spiritual evil is real, and it is active. The New Testament is clear on that. Those dark nights of the soul are absolutely ghastly. The world may pressure you to abandon your faith, and to mock you for your obedience to your Savior. Right? Boys and girls, this is part of what your moms and dads and your grandparents are trying to help you think through about the reality of the world in which we live. Right? You're in a church right now full of people who love the Lord Jesus. They love the Bible. They love God the Father, and they love God the Son, and they love God the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful place to sing about the Lord Jesus and to study his word and to grow in him, the people here surrounded, surrounding you love the Lord. We heard that even earlier this morning in Theo's baptism, didn't we? As we as a congregation affirmed to come alongside his parents and assist him in rearing him in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We do that because we love the Lord Jesus and we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we want them to love him as well. But here's the thing, boys and girls. There's a whole ton of people outside this church, throughout this world, who do not love the Lord Jesus. They don't know a thing about the Lord Jesus. They don't understand. They're confused. Some of them are outright opposed to him. And they would like nothing more than for you to not love him as either. And your moms and dads and your grandparents and your friends and your aunts and uncles and others and your, fam- your church family here in this church are trying to help you be prepared for what life in this world is going to be like with that reality, how to be a faithful Christian, how to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus in light of the hostility that we're up against. Some of our older covenant children, some of you younger folks that are in high school age or or college age, you probably know this reality. I don't know what your classroom experience has been like. I don't know what your experience has been like on campus, but maybe some of you could speak to that exact thing, that you know all too well what it's like to have that pressure exerted upon you where your peers, maybe some of your professors and teachers, would love for you to walk away from your faith. And they take great delight in mocking you on account of your obedience to your Savior. Some of you know what it's like to be derided and undergo that kind of peer pressure. The powers at work against a Christian are great, and it is to our peril, it is to our peril, if we don't take them seriously. We can't shrug them off, we cannot be flippant about this. Serious times call for serious assessment. But at the same time, Christian, take heart. Take heart. Christ's power is greater still. No matter what the world wants to throw at you, no matter what it's capable of throwing at you, Christ's power is greater still. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 33? In this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Let this truth resound in your heart and let it bolster your soul. As one pastor said many, many years ago, he said, Christ reigns. He reigns over Satan and his demonic minions. He reigns over kings and petty despots. He reigns over congressional budgets and Supreme Court decisions. He reigns over the nations. He reigns over heaven and over earth. Fix your eyes there, Christian, on him. Anchor your gaze on the anchor for your soul. Fix your gaze on the anchor for your soul. Here is the ground of all your comfort and all your assurance. Jesus, your Savior, reigns, and he is Lord of all. Close quote. So we see Christ exalted over death. We see Christ exalted over all powers. And then thirdly and finally, we see Christ exalted in the church. Christ exalted in the church. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now that is an astonishing thing. right? The one who rules all things, like we were just talking about, the one under whose feet all things have been placed, he reigns over nations, he reigns over demons, he reigns over angels, he reigns over all cosmic powers, is given to the church to be its head. Christ rules and reigns over all things in general, and he rules the church in particular. He is Lord over all creation, and he's the king over every other power. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can thwart the Savior's reign. But he bears a unique relationship to his people, his bride, the church. The church is his body, and as the head, he rules it, right? The church is the fullness of him, and so he fills it entirely. It's a great mystery, and it's a profound truth that Paul is seeking to explain to us here in these closing verses. The language that Paul uses, the the metaphor of which he speaks, speaks of a great spiritual intimacy and communion. That Christ, as he reigns and rules in a particular and a special way over the church, he inhabits and he fills his people. Do you see? Do you see how Christ executes power in the world and how he executes power in the church? It's not quite the same, is it? Not quite the same. Right? All things, all things are under his feet. Paul makes that clear. But for the church, he is its head. His body is not under his feet in the way other things in this world are right when when something's under your feet what is that what's that expressing well it's a posture of dominance it's a posture of control it's a posture of subjugation right that's the posture that Christ has over all things in this world but rather his body his church his people you and I brothers and sisters according to paul is his fullness christ fills all in all and the fullness the manner in which he fills all things over which he rules is his church. Now that's quite something. He rules over the world. He fills all things. And what's the manner in which he fills all things and expresses that authority and dominance over the world? It's his church. That's the fullness with which he fills. That's quite something. This is, there is a distinction. Christ is a king who exerts power terrible unto the wicked nations and yet power tender, ruling with mercy toward his own family. He exerts power terrible to the wicked nations who would rise against the Christ and against the Lord and against his anointed, but he exerts power tender, ruling with mercy and grace toward his own family. Did you notice even the verb tenses that Paul uses here? Paul speaks as if the exaltation of Christ is already complete. Look at verse 20. He has been seated at the right hand of God. And verse 22. All things have been placed under his feet. But look at the world. right? The truth is, it's hard to see all things in, under Christ's feet right now. Or at least it sure feels hard. Maybe it's just me. I suspect it's you as well. You look around, what do you see? You see terrorism? You see the sexual revolution growing more ravaging and rampant with each day? The violence on our streets? The deadly disease, diseases? Sure doesn't look like all things are under Christ's feet right now, does it? Christ reigns. But then you look out on the world and you wonder. There's a parallel passage in Hebrews chapter 2 which says, and you know it, at present, the writer of Hebrews says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Despite the way the world is now, Hebrews and Ephesians would have us know that Jesus does reign. Evil will finally be undone and it will finally and totally and irreversibly be overthrown. It is not yet, but it is one day soon. Christ is reigning and one day that day will come where everything wrong will become untrue and every tear will be wiped away from every eye. That day is coming. It is not yet, but it is coming soon. But for now, Paul in our passage says, for now, There is one place where the lordship of Christ is made visible explicitly in this world, where he is recognized and honored as king. Where is it? It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He fills the church. The church is his body. He is its head. Here his word and his will directs and governs our lives. Here, his presence shapes our fellowship. Here, his kingdom can be seen breaking into a dark world. We live in an age of rampant individualism, don't we? It has not left Christians unaffected. You see it in all kinds of popular Christian book titles. You you can hear it in a lot of popular Christian music. Uh, It was a few years ago I was wandering through a store, a popular nationwide chain Christian bookstore, which I think is more or less closed, most of its physical locations, and just wandering through the aisles and taking note of some of the titles that were on the shelves. Titles like this. Discover God's plan for your life. More to your story. You and Jesus. And on and on and on. Lots and lots of titles like that. This has been a great challenge that many have labored uh, or rather, this is a, a challenging reality that many in the wider American church have labored to emphasize in recent years. That when we gather for worship, it's not just you and Jesus having a personal private moment together and there just happens to be all these other people in the room. You're having a wonderful moment by yourself over there and you're having a wonderful moment by yourself over there and we all just happen by coincidence to be gathered together in this, this wonderful worship hall at the same moment simultaneously. Isn't that a nice coincidence? No. No. No, God is meeting with his church, his people gathered corporately. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God saves and God redeems and God reconciles individuals. Praise God he does that sinful old me and sinful old you have a right standing by justification with the Lord God Almighty on account of faith in Jesus Christ. Your personal private prayer life matters greatly, brothers and sisters. Your personal reading and study and meditating on the scriptures matters greatly. Absolutely. The piety of this church will be reflective of the piety in our families, which will be in turn reflective of our own individual pieties. Your personal communion with God is absolutely, profoundly important. However, the great burden of the New Testament is to show how the church is at the center of God's plan for the nations. The church is not accidental or incidental. It is not peripheral to God's plan. It is at the heart and at the center of it. I think for much of the American church, that has long been the mistaken mindset. That Christ Jesus came to save you, and the fact that you found yourself in a fellowship of other Christians is just an optional extra. Church is a nice bonus. If you can find faith in the Lord Jesus and make sure that you're saved, wonderful. And if you can find other people who believe that as well, then jolly good, all the better. No, the church is at the heart of the gospel. Christ came to die for the church. Christ Jesus came to build a church. According to the scripture, a churchless Christian is no Christian at all. You see, brothers and sisters, the church is of immense significance in God's plan of mercy. That's why Jesus rules and governs her in a distinct way from the world generally and that's what Paul is trying to to demonstrate. The thing is, beloved, you need power to put down your fears and protect you from error. So do I. You need power to keep pressing on as a believer when weariness overcomes you. How, How many of us How many of us have been bombarded with discouragement in recent years? Particularly, and I I don't know if you and and your circles have been bombarded with this, but I know that for me, for our family, for for our our past congregation, for a number of our friends uh, with whom we continue to be close in seminary, our, our circle of friends, we have been particularly discouraged as we've had case after case after case of apostasy playing out amongst those friends whom we were absolutely convinced loved the Lord We're absolutely convinced that they ought to be those laboring in his fields because they love the Lord so profoundly only to have walked away and fallen away. How many cases we've observed that those who once claimed to follow Christ follow him no longer. According to Paul, where do we find the power of King Jesus? Where do we find the power of King Jesus at work toward us for the living of these days, for the overcoming of that discouragement, for the power to press on? According to Paul, the church is the venue. It is the meeting place. It is the access point for the people of God to the power of Christ. Once again, I loved how Dr. Wilborn brought it out in the baptism this morning of little Theo. Did you hear it? He said, I want, don't you want your children to be in the place where God ordinarily visits his people with salvation? Don't you want your children to be in the church? Because the church is where God ordinarily visits his people with his saving graces. This is where his power is at work. Of course, then you think, power? This, what I'm looking at right now, this is power? The truth is, if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, maybe in our more unsanctified moments, the church can be a rather strange and awkward and seemingly unremarkable thing. Right, Men standing up in a big old pulpit, talking for a long time, some water sprinkled on a forehead. Some songs and hymns from centuries ago that we sing together. A little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. It doesn't look like power. At least not how we t- tend to conceive of power. And yet precisely, precisely here in the prayers and praises and the preaching and the sacraments, it is in the means of grace and the fellowship of the people of God in the ordinary worship of the church that Christ Jesus is present here in the church By his word and by his spirit, the head animates and directs the life of his body. Brothers and sisters, if tonight you feel yourself to be weak, if you feel yourself to be sorrowing or fearful or doubting, if tonight you've come here and you are sick of and you are absolutely fed up with your sin, if you are beat down from the world, if you're beat down from the hard providences that you've endured, I plead with you, don't. Look to anywhere else for help. Look to the place where Christ has promised that you would find the power and the aid that you need. Look to the church. Look to her worship. Look to her ordinances. Look to the the plain teaching of the Bible, the the pleading of God's promises and prayer, things that are absolutely unimpressive to the world around us, things that are easily mocked. And yet Jesus has promised to exactly and precisely there meet us as we come hungry and thirsty to him. Jesus comes in power and Jesus comes full of grace in the means of grace in the life of his church. You know, John Stott, the the famous Anglican theologian who went home to be with the Lord just a few years ago, he once said, the church is part of the gospel. The church is part of the gospel. It's not some incidental, peripheral, auxiliary thing. It's right at the heart of the gospel, the gospel good news. Brothers and sisters, if you want Christ, and you want to know and savor and avail yourself of his saving power, then be where he shows up in mercy and grace. Be in the church. Christ is what your soul needs, beloved. May God help you to come to him once again and find the power of God to keep you and the power of God to preserve you and the power of God to assure you both this night and all the way home to glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, how we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way that he rules over all things, that he rules over all evil, all powers, and that he is risen and reigning in his church, his fullness, which is the church. Please give us Christ anew in his power and his grace by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would visit us and give us grace for the living of these days. And may it be that we always would seek him in the place where he has unfailingly and infallibly promised to meet us exactly in the midst of our very need. Seal your precious word to our hearts this night for your glory and for our everlasting good. This we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.